Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. In this season, I'll be interviewing various successful traders and investors in my network and asking them pertinent questions about their career in the financial markets. I'll also be discussing how they've dealt with the recent surge in market volatility following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and how they are viewing the future as we all adjust to a new way of working. We'll also be talking about market themes that are likely to gain traction in a post-COVID-19 world. Joining me for today's podcast is Cy Jacobs. Cy is the co-founder of 361 Asset Management. The firm has been operational in South Africa for the last 15 years. They run unit trust funds and hedge funds and manage several billion rands of assets under management. Their track record is phenomenal. They have great market outperformance over the years and everything that 361 does screams professionalism. I first met Cy back in 2006 when I was a broker at BOE Stockbrokers. We used to house and broker some of their trades in the early days of 361 Asset Management. Cy, thanks very much for joining me on today's podcast. Absolutely, and thanks, Garth, for the time. Uh, it's been a long time since we chatted. Early days at NetBank, and uh, I remember when you first started in the market, and sure, done well since then. Always brought a lot of energy to the market, which I think is a is a great thing. No, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that, and, and likewise to yourself. So, if we go back to the beginning, you know, what got you into the markets in the beginning, and got you into this career uh, from a from, from the start? Well, as a as a teenager at school, uh, I actually had a, a very good friend whose whose father was quite uh, shrewd and invested in the market for many years, a chartered accountant, and myself and my good friend started investing when we were about sixteen. Didn't have much money. In fact, I didn't come from any money, so I think we had a couple of thousand rand. Uh, but we started following things and getting some advice from his father. And as time went on, we managed to secure actually an overdraft guaranteed by his father. But unfortunately, uh, after the trick, I went away as an exchange student for a year, and that year happened to be 1987. And we got caught up in the October crash, lost our money. In fact, we landed up with a net negative balance given the fact that our knowledge on markets was not good at the time. And uh, his father was rather strict, and we went into a, a loan agreement for a few years and had to pay all the money back with interest. And I think that was a very interesting lesson. And it didn't deter me from investments, but it made me rather cautious. And I think that's been my first and most valuable lesson in markets. And from then, I... Uh, just took a part, became a CA, went straight into markets after my articles, and have been in the markets ever since. That's fascinating. So, but like many of the, the people I've interviewed on this uh, podcast series, you also had a bit of a baptism by fire, starting out not so well. Um, I mean, I count myself the same in, in that respect. My first couple of years weren't very good either and also lost some money along the way. But obviously, you've you've really evolved and your career's developed substantially and you've, you've 
now head up 361 hedge fund manager unit trust fund manager and um, and everything that you do you know just screams out professionalism certainly over the years that I dealt with you when I was a broker at BOE we, we did a couple of your trades there and everything that that are that I see of you in the publicity and you know or everything around 361 just smacks of professionalism and, uh, and 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 kudos to you for that but you mentioned that you, you you learned some valuable lessons early on in life about risk and what have you so taking it forward now what is your primary strategy nowadays in terms of how you invest or trade the market yeah so, so first of all you know I'm not a great trader so let's understand there's a big very big difference between trading and investing uh, and in the short term, I've honestly probably one of the worst traders you'll find. So very difficult for me to make short-term profits unless something is really glaringly obvious and offers value or is overvalued or there could be a potential catalyst. So I've always learned and I've learned over the years that, you know, long-term investing in, in great businesses, you know, that have good moats, that have technology associates with them that can continually innovate have ultimately become the best investments. Those in South Africa, unfortunately, of late and in the last number of years, are very limited. So I haven't been able to find, you know, particularly South African businesses listed on the South African market that exhibit those characteristics. But overall, um, you know, sticking to good quality businesses, particularly international businesses, um, you know, have really stood us and myself um, you know, a great, uh, you know, in a great way, and I think that overall, um, avoiding the poor quality, badly run, you know, businesses in industries that are antiquated, that you know maybe don't have the future, is you know what we've avoided. And obviously, the hedge fund we've taken advantage of both. But overall, it's not a very complicated investment objective. It's just to be in businesses that continually grow, deliver good cash flows, have great management teams that are aligned along the same lines as, as us as shareholders. And uh, over time, that you know, that's delivered great returns. Yeah, so it talks to consistency. Um, and with that, you know, as, as you've mentioned, you look at businesses that, are, that have a future ahead of them and you're not that keen on old economy type of stuff. Obviously, we're living through... Uh, an extremely tumultuous time in the world now we're living through history with COVID-19 and what have you and everything's changing the way we work is changing all of us are having to suddenly become a bit more innovative in terms of how we can continue to do our business so with that in mind I mean is there anything or are there any specific themes that you're picking up on or that you're following on in terms of investment themes looking into the future that perhaps were not there just a couple of months ago well I think I think we've seen an acceleration of the trends that were happening. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that unfortunately, uh, and you now living abroad, but unfortunately, South Africa is deteriorating, you know, at a significant pace. And that pace now, in my view, has accelerated. And that would you know, tend us to believe that South African specific investments in local industries are going to be very tough. And maybe, you know, thankfully we're in the hedge fund game, so we could effectively utilize those investments to potentially make money and maybe find the relatively better ones versus the relatively worse ones. So still there's, you know, an arbitrage opportunity, even though things are declining. 
But I think this COVID pandemic has made us, uh, you know, wake up quickly and realize that, you know, a lot of the technology businesses in biotech, in health tech, in, you know, in, in, in various types of technology and, all, and businesses that have just embraced technology, um, you know, and have metamorphosized and effectively converted their business models to utilize technology are going to be the winners in the future. And it's difficult in this pandemic to see South African businesses or the majority of them actually doing that. But it is very easy to recognize, I think, many of the global leaders in that space. And so that's where we've been directing as much as in, of investment as possible, um, you know, away from this domestic market. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of risk, obviously, we've been through an extremely volatile time in the market now in the first half of 2020. Um, and you're in the hedge fund space, as you've obviously mentioned, uh, longs and shorts. But risk is, is a big thing. And when you got the, the market swinging as wildly as it has done over the last few months, I mean, we saw the fastest uh, crash, fastest decline on the S&P 500 ever, followed by the fastest rally almost ever on the S&P 500 within a, within a very short space of time. How do, you, how do you approach that in terms of risk management so that you don't incur these enormously wild swings on your portfolios? And have you had to change your, your approach towards risk at all, given the recent excessive volatility? Yeah, so, so that, that question is very general, and I suppose it depends really on which mandate specifically you're referring to. So, for example, in the hedge fund space, you know, we're always very, very, uh, prone to protecting the portfolio because risk is at, probably at the forefront of that type of investment. The benchmark is cash. So effectively, you're not meant to take effectively a lot of market risk in that kind of portfolio. So leading into a COVID position, we had proper protection uh, in the way of put spreads, normal put protection, a very low net exposure to, to markets, shorts balancing out the longs. So in the tumultuous time, as you, as you so called it, the fund fully protected capital on the way down, and we got a small amount of the upside on the way up, so that the fund continued to basically outperform its benchmark of cash per annum, which it's done significantly, uh, you know, probably two or three times cash over the life of the fund per annum. But it, uh, it effectively is run very much around the risk associated with the beta of the market and protecting that beta from the portfolio. If you look in other portfolios of ours, and we run a lot of unit trusts, as you mentioned, um, general equity unit trusts, SA equity unit trusts, flexible funds, balance funds, it all would depend really on the benchmark of that particular fund. If it's a pure equity benchmark, then the risk for us is all about our equities just really outperforming the equities of the market. So obviously we're prepared to go down if the market falls 30%, we know we're going to take a, you know, a rather large drawdown. In this case, we managed to take probably 15% less than the market on the way down. And as a result, on a year-to-date basis, are about 15% ahead of the market. And you know, that for us is an absolute result because that's what the client is setting you in that type of portfolio, a benchmark to beat the market. So risk gets really applied differently across different types of portfolios. But overall, it has always been key to us relative to the benchmark to ensure that we understand 
our intrinsic risks versus the appropriate benchmarks. Okay, yeah, fantastic. Now, your um, saying or the, the byline of your firm, 361, it's going the extra degree. And everything you've talked about there is essentially that, just going that extra little bit further to try and achieve that extra couple of percent over the market and that, that ultimately compounds over time. And if you do that year in and year out, you'll actually achieve phenomenal results over the long over the long period of time. Um, I've recently read a book or listened to the audio book by James Clear called Atomic Habits and in that he refers to just doing everything 1% better and if you can consistently do everything just that 1% better then ultimately the long-term result becomes significantly better. Um, I must say I had a, a first-hand experience with that when you and I dealt in early days and I think now this was right in the beginning when you were uh, at, when you had just started 361, it was probably 2006 or maybe 2007, I was a broker and some of the trades that you, you did, you did through our desk. And I remember one particular incident. We, always, we all have these incidents in our memories, which uh, some of us never forget. And this particular time, I don't even know whether you'll remember this side, but I'll remind you of it anyway. Um, there was a, a, a quite a new, lot of new listings coming to the market in the preference share space and particularly in the banking area of the market. And uh, APSA listed some preference shares and they came to market and I think that they came to market at about 75% of prime. And you'd placed an order with us to, to participate in the in the IPO of those preference shares, but you were specific on your level. And I think you had said you wanted them at 73% of prime, no more. And in any case, our dealer who then went ahead and put our orders into the auction for this new listing, came back and we got the stock at 75% and I took, took it to you and you said, ah, sorry, I didn't want it at 75%, I wanted it at 73%, I'm not taking the stock. And it was a small difference, but in any case, we had to wear the missed deal. And, and I'm, I mean, it was also a very good learning experience for me as well. And don't worry, I still got my bonus that year, so I'm not <laughs> complaining. But, but, but the reason I bring this up and, the, and, and why I want to you know, list, uh, raise this is, um, is, the, is the question is that, you know, everything you do, like I said, it smacks of professionalism and, and, and just everything is, 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 is very, very, very professional. But we also know that... Um, this game isn't always plain sailing. It's not always calm seas. And it, even though you, you strive to try and get that extra 1% and do that extra little thing just that little bit better, as, as I experienced with that trade that I referenced there, it's not always plain sailing. So over the years, you know, I'm sure you've had ups and downs. And have you got any particular experiences that you can tell us about where things were tough and you had to you know, dig deep to try and yeah, uh, you know, keep keep motivated and keep going in this business. Yeah, so I think I think for us we've had a few of those times. Obviously, in, in fifteen years, you know, markets don't always respond to the what the way you're thinking. Um, I think the one particular time I can remember was probably January of '08. It was pre, just before pre the, the global financial crisis. But uh, you know, we'd gone on holiday at the end of 2007. We we had a phenomenal year. Um, funds were up 30% pluses, uh, everything was good, but we had quite significant net exposure. In January 2008, Eskom, out of nowhere with no warning, basically uh, ran into trouble and light switched off and markets corrected. And it was an interesting time for us because we got a fright and maybe we overreacted and we tried to protect the portfolios. 
In the meantime, we had a, a V-shaped recovery like we've had now in the pandemic in the month of January of 08. And we participated on the down, but never participated on the up. Um, and as a result, we had uh, quite a big knock, 10% of our funds, where we you know, went down 10% in a single month. We did actually make that back over the next couple of months. So it landed up being not that serious, but I think it was a really big lesson for us. And as a result, specifically in the hedge funds, some investors got spooked. How can a hedge fund lose 10% in such a short period of time? And I think we learned many lessons from that. Um, and a lot of the way we, we manage the hedge fund over the years has progressed in a very scientific and calculated way since then. And, uh, you know, I doubt our largest, our biggest loss since then has been probably, a, you know, a couple of percent in any given month. And we really pride ourselves on the fact that, you know, all the months since then, I think, you know, if you take, uh, I think it's something like 36 different months since that period, the market's been down three to four percent plus in those months. The hedge fund has overall lost zero in those very negative months. You're listening to Talking with Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. So we've had those experiences. I can think of a specific stock experience as well in 2008. Uh, Centula, for example, uh, you know, management. We got, we got, we often don't get caught up in believing management. As you know, we're very skeptical. But in that particular year, we did believe that, uh, you know, Centula was real and there were no real frauds happening and nothing was misrepresented. Uh, but we got caught by that investment as well in that year and it cost our funds around 2% uh, in, in 2008. So I remember those hard ones where something gets wiped out and you effectively were long the position. Thankfully, I think post that era, pretty much all the wipeouts that have happened in the markets, the standoffs, various property groups that have collapsed and uh, weren't doing things according to the book as far as we're concerned, you know, as well as the Tongarts and various other, you know, misrepresented opportunities. We've luckily been on pretty much the right side of all of those and luckily haven't taken uh, any big knocks on, on any of those opportunities. So. Overall, a couple of bad stories, maybe one bad month, but overall it's been very good and um, we've learned from from a few lessons. Okay, super. Now, you referenced a couple of the, the, the good ones there where you were on the right side of frauds and things like that. And obviously, yes, I know you were on the right side of Steinhoff. You guys were short in Steinhoff. And also another one that um, that you got a good lot of good press for was being short in African Bank when that stock collapsed to zero as well. Um, and obviously, that, I mean, those are brilliant from, a, from a, a press and a marketing point of view to have been on the right side of those. But I know that they would have been a pretty small percentage of your fund overall. Nevertheless, it worked out well for you. But in that context, have you got any specific best trades or best investments that stand out for you over the years? Oh, so, I mean, on the long side, there's only one investment for us that stood out both for the funds and for me personally has been NASPAS. I mean, NASPERS, if I go back to the eras even before 2008, 
when Chris Becker was in charge as CEO and he was very approachable and the company wasn't that sought after as it is today. We used to meet actually on a, on a six monthly basis in these small little offices at the BJM offices. Um, and I used to listen to this absolutely insightful genius of a man who would explain how the world was going to evolve from a technology point of view. And I bought into his view and his uh, insight and his strategy and everything about the way he was positioning this business. And I think, you know, from those days to today, that's been our largest investment. Yes, it's become obviously the largest in the market over the past decade, but it wasn't in the earlier years. Um, and as a result, I think we've been very lucky. I've been lucky. In fact, the South African market has been lucky that something like this existed here because without that, there wouldn't have been much, much excitement specifically in the last few years and maybe even during this COVID pandemic, you know, that's offered people an opportunity, a Rand Hedge technology opportunity of international scale. So that's definitely on the investment side been by far, by just country miles, the single best investment. Um, and obviously that's on the unit trust, the long side, the hedge fund. On the short side, yes, as you said, these are never really large, large opportunities. Um, African Bank was a big one. You know, the resilient group turned out to be a very good one as well. Um, and uh, there's been various, you know, short opportunities over the years uh, in many businesses. So I think as a theme in the last couple of years, the overall industrial, retail, financial businesses that are listed here in South Africa that are domestically inwardly focused, and I'd add to that all the property counters, have been really phenomenal opportunities on the short side and in aggregate they've done very well for the funds yeah no for sure but i think what, what one thing we must just point out to anybody listening to this interview is that when you're when you're short the best you can hope to do is to make a hundred percent on your short obviously unless you you're geared but the point is that the worst that can happen or the best that can happen is the price goes to naught and you make a hundred percent on your short whereas when you're long you can make many 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 hundreds of percent as in the case of of Naspers for you since those yeah, early think, days yeah, I mean, we've looked at NASPAS a few times and we have we have some clients we bought NASPAS for in the early days that are up a few thousand percent. So, I mean, that's obviously compared to shorts, it would get nowhere near that. We have some, you know, shares that cost 60 Rand and obviously the combined value now between NASPAS, Process, Multi-Choice, one or two other small things have unbundled over the years, you know, it's close to 5,000. So, you know, 60 bucks to... 5,000 bucks is not a, not a bad return. No, certainly not a bad return at all. <laughs> Just on that, I mean, obviously that, that does then become an outsized position in a portfolio when you, when you see such an uh, incredible outperformance. Do you look to, uh, to sort of re-weight that position? Because, I mean, in re-weighting an Aspis over the years actually would have been detrimental to one's performance if you were, uh, yeah, just I kept it to a limited por portion of a portfolio. Yeah, unfortunately, we did, I mean, continually uh, sell off portions, you know, because it, it, it is always got that slight risk attached to who knows, you know, whether there could have been a change in Chinese regulation um, or a competitor could have, you know, eaten their market share or something could have happened in the specific technologies. It's very difficult to have, you know, by now you would have had 80 or 90% of your portfolio in one stock. So we had continually... Uh, reduced the portfolio, the, the, the stake in 
pretty much all our portfolios, but remain very outsized. I mean, even today, if you look at our SA equity long only portfolio between process and NUSPAS, we have 23% of our funds in that in those two combined, which is effectively the same same business. Um, and it's been an you know overweight position in many, not always, but in, in many of the years that, that have gone by. Obviously, Tencent has also had its ups and downs over time. Um, and hopefully during those downs, we haven't been too too overweight. And that has also you know, given us some cushion. Mm. Okay, fantastic. Now, just on a more general note, you know, Sai, if, if a youngster came to you and said, I'm interested in getting involved in the market, I want to become a hedge fund manager one day or a unit trust fund manager, and this is the career that I want to follow, what two or three pieces of advice would you give to that youngster? Well, I think the, the game here as well is evolving. So I think today, uh, you know, had I started off in today's era, and let's say I had the same interest I had 30-something uh, years ago in the markets, uh, I'm not quite sure that the path I would have taken today would be the same as the path I took then. And I think that because the, the way we're trading, and you'll know this very much, Garth, is, it, you know, it's evolving. Data science is becoming a lot more important uh, you know the AI has picked up dramatically the biggest funds today have an enormous advantage over funds like ourselves luckily it's not a major thing in South Africa yet but in global markets you need almost data scientists that are looking at a you know a very quantitative way of assessing data and information and applying a lot of that uh, together with fundamentals so I, I think to have your you know, to, to be a junior guy now who really comes in with no experience, um, you know, it's difficult to use, let's say, old-style techniques of evaluating companies from a fundamental uh, point of view and, you know, really getting traction in this asset management game in the years to go forward and would suggest, you know, you rather study all these various applied mathematics and data and try and, you know, almost conquer the entry into asset management in a different way, a new, more exciting way. And I think, you know, there are various studies. We had an actuary who worked for us who went and pursued that avenue in the UK uh, and is now, you know, potentially, you know, going to run funds um, along those lines. And I think there's a great need for that type of a person uh, compared to, let's call it our old style techniques that, that we use. Mm, okay. And are there any books that you think uh, are must-reads that any aspirant investor should have on their bookshelf? Well, I, you know, you asked me this actually yesterday, and I thought, uh, are there any books that, I, that, that, that you would read? And I think I thought about it from a trading point of view. I just remembered old books that I read. Um, the one was Reminiscence of a Stockbroker, which I'm sure you've, you've read it. Yep. Uh, and that's, if you're a trader, that was a very interesting book. Not that I'm, as I mentioned, a, a great trader. Um, I thought for me the most pertinent book I ever read, actually, uh, which gave you perspective on what can happen even if you write in the hedge fund game, um, was Red Notice about uh, the Russian hedge fund manager. Um, and I think that wasn't really about the skill set, but more about what you're up against in various economies. And I'm not saying South Africa is necessarily the same as Russia, but some very interesting lessons to be learned 
when you try to take on the corporate world uh, in a particular economy, specifically an emerging economy, where potentially your your regulation and law is not as strong as as, as let's say in the US, um, and it's things to just be cautious of. That you may be right, you may be one hundred percent right, but the result in the end may not be what you get and hope for, because the truth is that uh, you know there are many bad people in many of these economies, and a lot of those bad people get to various institutional hearts and regulation and regulators and connections in government and strong institutions. And I think that that book gives you a great perspective of, uh, you know, caution you need to take in, uh, in dealing in markets where maybe the regime, you know, is not a full free market economy. Thanks. I'm going to look that one up because I, I must say, after doing all of these interviews with various different traders and investors, many different books have come up, and I'm, I'm actually adding quite actively to my uh, Audible library at the moment, adding lots of new books to read. So thank you very much for that one. That hasn't come up in any of the recommendations yet in any of the other interviews. Um, we're nearing the end of our allotted time, so I just one or two more questions. The one thing I've always wondered about is guys like yourself who who bear such a huge responsibility. You know, you're looking after billions of rands of assets under management. It's an in, incredibly large responsibility. How do you balance out that? Uh, you know, the, there must be a lot of stress associated with that. How do you achieve balance in life? looking after that level of responsibility, that amount of money, and still managing to you know, balance out a family life and, and, and all of the other things to live a balanced life. How do, how do you manage that? Yeah, so that's a, it's a very good question, and it's, it's obviously not that easy. And I think many times to your family, specifically my children, it's frustrating because you, know, you can be on a holiday on a beach, but markets are still open, and you've still got the responsibility of, watching everything and keeping up to date with all news and company releases to ensure that you are correctly positioned. So it unfortunately does have uh, very negative um, aspects that spill over, I think, into your, into your personal life that are unavoidable. And specifically, if you want to remain good at the forefront of all information, you know, you can't just switch off your life and switch on your personal life at any time. So the two are intertwined. So it is, a, it is a challenge. I think over the years, your, your families probably get used to it and understand that that's just the way it is. And they obviously see the, the upside of that if you, if you do well. Um, but I guess, you know, the lucky thing for us over the years is that, you know, we are more longer-term investors. And it's, you know, it is quite unusual that you would need to make substantial shifts in our overall portfolio, like on a daily basis. It's more tweaks uh, around certain elements. So, you know, it, the stress, hopefully, on a, you know, in a quiet time between, you know, Christmas and New Year and other, you know, long weekends, et cetera, does, does alleviate. But it is a challenge and it's, a, you know, and, it, and it, it will always be a challenge. So that's why I think, uh, you know, say very, you know, especially hectic traders have a limited lifespan. In that, you know, so I think for us it's lasted a lot longer because we're a lot longer term focused. Um, but yeah, it's it's a difficult one to balance. Yeah, for sure. And uh, last thing, I see you you guys uh, manage, run, and sponsor the the 
361 mountain bike challenge and I was reading about that on the internet before we uh, before we started this interview so 36.1 hours to complete the beast is what it says and it's a 361 kilometer mountain bike challenge in and around the area around Otsuan in the Karoo um, looks fantastic I'm a mountain bike rider but I've never done anything like that are you a cyclist yourself Si and do you participate in that event Yes, yeah, so I've done the event a couple of times, but I've never done the full 361Ks. I've, there is an option to do half. So uh, it was actually my idea because I thought 180Ks on a mountain bike was enough in a single day. Um, it's a very grueling event, but it's a phenomenal event. I mean, the, the landscape is, is phenomenal. At our peak, we had close to 1,000 people, I think of which eight or 900 attempted the full 361 kilometers. It's a single stage, so you know you just ride until you're done. We have phenomenal checkpoints and food, and people go to sleep at various stages if they need to. Um, but it really is something I would recommend if you're interested in endurance events. Try it. It's a very non-technical ride as well, so the chance of you doing any damage is close to zero. And uh, it's really been a phenomenal ride, and I, I look forward to maybe one day if I've got more time. You know challenging myself to ride the, the full distance. Yeah, fantastic. And that race happens in November. So are there still entries available? There's still entries available. We actually had to move the event uh, uh, to November. It normally takes place uh, in, in the end of March or April. Uh, and we moved it subsequently actually even to May. But this year we've had to move it uh, to November and hope that it will take place by November. Absolutely. Well, Scythe, it's really been interesting talking to you. Thanks so very, very much for giving me uh, 45 minutes of your time today. It's been fascinating. Uh, all the best, and I look forward to catching up again. All the best, Garth, and all the best in the markets, and I uh, hope you're doing well in the UK. Thanks for the time as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.